Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. On this show, we have informal conversations with climate-relevant researchers. I'm an oceanographer, and I started this podcast because I love talking with and learning from other researchers. I'm joined by my fantastic co-host, Dr. Ella Gilbert, who studies clouds and their relevance to climate, among many other things. Ella is a new regular co-host. She'll be appearing on most of the episodes from now on, which I'm really excited about. Today, I'm really happy to bring you this conversation with Emily Matthews, a PhD student at the University of Manchester. Emily works on bioaerosols in Antarctica, which we'll talk about more in a minute. She also had an interesting route through the private sector before returning to university to get her PhD. We'll talk about her interesting pathway in a few minutes here. Emily works on the UK AXIS project, which is an acronym. It's A-C-S-I-S, which stands for the North Atlantic Climate System Integrated Study. AXIS, which we talk about a lot in the episode, is a multi-institute project funded by the Natural Environment Research Council, or NERC, with an aim to better understand the coupled ocean-atmosphere-cryosphere system, including the composition of the atmosphere, and to better understand how all of these constituent components interact with each other. By understanding how all these changes relate to external drivers of climate, such as human activity or natural variability, AXIS hopes to improve our capability to detect, explain, and predict changes in the North Atlantic climate system. This project it involves some cutting-edge modeling work, observational work, and including aircraft flights to sample the composition of the atmosphere, yeah, so Exus is in its final year, and it's producing some really interesting scientific results, but I have to give you a disclaimer here. I'm definitely biased because I've been funded by Axis myself for the last few years, so check it out. It's uh, acsis.ac.uk is the website where you can check out what we've been up to. Um, you know, we've done oceanographic work, composition work, cryosphere work, all sorts of things. We've been doing lots of stuff together. We recorded this interview back in the winter, which is why we talk about snow and the UK lockdown a bit, but that's fine. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it. I think that's all I need to say up top. So I really enjoyed this chat and I hope that you enjoy it as well. Let's go ahead and get right into it. Here we go. Emily, nice to meet you. We haven't actually met in person before. No, I don't think we have. No, um, unless you happen to come to one of the Axis meetings um, over the past couple of years. Maybe we've been in the same room at some point. <laughs> I yeah, I presented one in September, but I'm not sure if that was purely aircraft. Okay, right. Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us. All right, thanks for having me. And uh, this is Ella, Ella Gilbert. I don't know if you've met. Hello. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think we have either. <laughs> no, I don't think we've crossed paths. So Ella just recently finished up her PhD at VAS yep. and uh, is now working in Reading um, remotely. like living... <laughs> Definitely remotely. I have, I yes. have an, an office that I've never been to. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere. So it, has somebody put your name on it yet? Is there just like an? Interview? I don't know. I'm told it exists, but it could be, of course, a complete fabrication. Who knows? You could show up tomorrow and have them panic, like, "Oh no, uh, yeah." 
So Ella is joining us as a co-host. Um, so Ella's done a ton of public outreach uh, stuff and still still does, is still an active you know, public outreach person. Yeah. And uh, so I thought uh, it'd be great to have, you know, more than just two two people involved in the mix. Be uh, both oceanographers. Um, he said you were. I'm an atmospheric physicist. Oh. <laughs> well, that sounds very grand, but basically, I like clouds. That's that's the main. Okay, you probably know more about my stuff than I do. <laughs> I don't know. I find chemistry and atmospheric composition very complicated, but of course, I respect the fact that it's very important for the things that I'm interested yeah. in. <laughs> so you can maybe be the the intermediary between me and Dan. You know, ocean, atmospheric yeah. composition, cloud physics. Composition, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of one of the ideas behind the the Axis project, you know, as they call it, is to have some big interdisciplinary, cross center, you know, involving many different people, sort of effort that takes climate variability, you know, all the way through from the ocean perspective, atmospheric perspective, composition perspective, so you can talk about. The North Atlantic Oscillation and you know do aerosol emissions affect that sort of thing that sort of climate cycle for example there's all, all kinds of questions you could you could address but um, yeah but before we get launched down the science kind of pathway too much so so Emily are you up in Manchester now is that where you are yeah I'm in Manchester I've got the Watchdale Canal right next to me <laughs> mm. I did my undergrad in Manchester as well yeah um, so I've been here a while now um, but we haven't got any snow. I don't know about you guys. My family live in Sheffield and they've all be sending me pictures of like six foot of snow. And, mm. yeah. yeah, no, London, devoid of snow, much yeah. too much ground. There was some falling yesterday, but it didn't stick. And basically it was like a mixture of snow and kind of slushy, yeah. sleety sort of, you know. Not the kind that you really want. No. No. <laughs> no not I get really. a lot of emails from department people at Reading about the the odd snowflake <laughs> but I like that the Reading snowflake email list I'm like I saw one <laughs> unintentionally I seem to have been included on this list <laughs> so you get all the latest updates on yeah individual snowflakes in, <laughs> in Reading I, I like that reminds me of um this is just a silly aside but whatever um so I did my PhD at Colorado state and uh, about halfway through I physically moved to Georgia which is like 1600 miles away and uh, but I was still on all of the departmental mailing lists so you know every now and then sitting in Atlanta I would get an email reminding me that hey there's cookies in the break room you know in this room that's like 1600 miles away and uh, it was weird it's always weird to know something that specific about a room that far away <laughs> you know like that there's <laughs> I guess you can do that with webcams and things but um, yeah, so Maybe I guess webcam I think is a little bit far. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. They they had one for this pitch drop experiment, right? Where they uh, do you know about this? The the pitch experiment where there's the very very slow flowing uh, pitch substance, like a tar like substance, and they've got, they've had a webcam on it for for years. Uh, this is I forget where it is exactly, but it's a physics department somewhere. So they just are watching it slowly, slowly, slowly. Like there's only like a couple of drops Literally per... Literally like watching paint dry. 
kind of there's yeah, so like there's wow. a couple, couple of drops per like decade i forget you know it's it's very slow someone told me about the being a webcam um focused on um i think it's a mcdonald's like big mac or something to watch it slowly degrade and it still looks exactly the same as the day it was purchased <laughs> which is obviously probably what they were in, intending to prove it's terrifying <laughs> um, so. <laughs> so emily just to tell you a little bit more about the show so i started it a couple of years ago um, because i have a podcast addiction and um, I was deluded into thinking that this is how people communicate by listening to too many podcasts. So I decided I would start one. And I mean, really, I, I like learning from other researchers and I like sharing that. I, I was getting a lot out of those conversations I found in it. It felt kind of unfair that I was keeping all of those to myself. And I thought, yeah, I, I should just share them. I should just see, put them on the internet and see what happens. And um, yeah, we've got an audience. They, um, there are like researchers listening, there are PhD students listening, um, you know, undergrad students, there's members of the public too, um, just kind of interested people, you know, sci sci science communication people. So it's it's a pretty like overall like science literate kind of audience. Yep. So we, we can get a little bit more technical than like a BBC show or something, you know, it, you, you can, we can go into the weeds a little bit. Um, yeah without getting totally lost in them, but we can, we can certainly like dip into that stuff. Um, uh, that being said, I don't know enough about your field to ask any like, you know, very so detailed questions. So we just kind of see where the conversation goes really. Um, and then at some point we can talk about your, your kind of pathway into science. And I think, so Ella, feel free to jump in whenever, ask whatever you like, you know, react to whatever you like. It's, um, it's, I want it to feel like open and free flowing for all of us. And I want us, to, I just want us to have a good time really is basically what, what I would yeah. like to happen. All about the bands. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically, I mean, yes, that's part of it, right? That's part of it. And, uh, cause I don't know, it's, it's, you can have an enjoyable conversation that way. And you can actually also, you, you can communicate quite a lot actually as well, because if you're more relaxed and conversational, some people find that way easier to take in than like a, really polished, um, you know, BBC level, like everything's been, you know, kind of not, not, there's nothing wrong with that approach. I'm not criticizing that approach, but I'm saying like, it's nice to, there are people out there who do that way better than I ever could. And I'm not going to try to compete with them. Like it just makes sense to me to have a conversational format thing where we talk about it. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Do you have any questions or thoughts or, or anything? Uh, no, not really. No, that was not nice. Nice Friday afternoon. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think Friday afternoons. That's it. I think it makes sense. I think that's yeah. a good time to have these chats, right? Um, yeah. So, how is the how is the new lockdown going for you? <laughs> a terrible question. But... No, I mean, I feel like partly by this point, you almost kind of feel like I'm kind of used to it, but then equally as fed up. Like, I really love skiing, and you know. <laughs> I would There's love no snow in Manchester, <laughs> as I've heard. Yeah, I could go skiing at home, but you know, like, I would love to go skiing this year, but that might not happen, selfishly, <laughs> but obviously, yeah. worst thing. But all in all, like, okay, I'm quite lucky that what I do is quite fairly lab-based, so I've at least been able to go into uni, like, a few days a week, you know, sort of be mm. relatively sane and just get you out of the flat. Um, you, you can leave your place that's pretty amazing that sounds <laughs> yeah i'm really jealous being a modeler does not give me the same sort of uh, relief 
no yeah my yeah. boyfriend's doing a phd as well but he's all machine learning so he just hasn't had an excuse to leave since you know, last march whenever it was just um, sitting in there yeah it's i mean this recent lockdown was the right call and yeah. they probably should have done it way earlier but yeah it's been hard to have um you know the to have uh, homeschooling again and to have the two working parent thing again. And I had miss, uh, I had underestimated how important the school run had been to my overall health. You know, just that 10 minutes, 10 minutes there, 10 minutes back twice a day, that walk, like that was really good for me. It's just and, getting out as well, isn't it? I found the same with the commute. Cause I, I mean, I used to commute to Cambridge and it's mm-hmm. just the cycle to the station, even though you're sitting on a train and then the cycle on the other side, it makes a big difference. Get a bit more daylight and, yeah. <laughs> you know, actually do some physical activity instead mm. of just mm, my commuters from my bed to my office. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I'm in my bedroom. I've got a, a even shorter commute. <laughs> Think of the time you're saving, though. <laughs> I know one of my colleagues has worked her commute into her day. She will like, she'll walk some distance and then walk back as like the start of her day to kind of mark the the beginning of it. And um, that's very impressive and probably helpful. I I don't think I can manage that with homeschooling and whatnot. And that just seems like I can't quite get, I can't get it together enough to do something that structured. Are your kids uh, young? Yeah, he, I just got the one. He's nine, but uh, yeah. So, and we also have a, a corgi hanging around here, a dog that we take care of. So I at he least get schooling the corgi. Trying, but he's very uh, stubborn. <laughs> he's very like not interested in learning about you know multiplication at all. Just, Dogs are just yeah. like that, aren't they? Totally nightmare. Yeah. So the. Uh, Emily, what what are you have you been working on kind of recently? That's that's sometimes kind of a good way in, you know, talk about what you've been working on, the project that you've been working on a little bit. Could you yeah. tell us a little bit about it? So most of my work is looking at the Axis data. Um, so these are the aircraft campaigns um, flying around um, the North Atlantic, um, sort of various regions between the UK, the Azores, um, and all the way sort of down to Cape Verde. So there's like a whole host of us from all over the UK. Um, so I personally measure trace gases, but then we also have instruments that measure aerosols um, and greenhouse gases, so CO and ozone. Um, some looking at the cloud properties. Um, so there's a whole host of us sort of just flying around with our own sort of specific interests to build this sort of wider project. Yeah. Have so, you been on the on the aircraft? Is this yeah. The so I was lucky enough to go on one last February. Um, so that was 10 days, um, mainly down in Cape Verde. Um, so that was lovely. Um, and then mm. I did a very short one in August 2019, sort of for training. That's oh, the fam, isn't it? Yeah, the fam plane. Yeah. It's very, very much more luxurious than the uh, British Antarctic aircraft. Oh, the, the Twin Otter one, I've seen. Yeah, I mean, it's it's nice if you like having your, your knees under your chin, but um, the fam is very much more <laughs> uh, spacious, let's say. Yeah, it's, it's like it's almost the same size as a commercial airplane. Like, I was shocked when I first got on it. I was like, wow, this is like a real plane. <laughs> so, yeah, I've only been on it once, but I've had exactly the same reaction. Oh my God, this is <laughs> yeah. not what I was expecting in the slightest. It's yeah. very shiny. You yeah. can stretch your legs out a little bit, yeah. You can so, even walk around, Dan. It's yeah, oh my gosh. Around, mind-blowing. Yeah. <laughs> so can you tell us a little more about 
what's it like to be on the FAM aircraft and what's that experience like of, you know, gearing up to do the flights? And I understand there's a, there's a planning phase, right? Or, and, and things could change based on the weather. There's lots of different yeah, things to so, possibly talk about. Um, so, so to take, for example, the one I did last in February, um, that was sort of a joint campaign between Access and one called Arna. And those guys were really interested in chasing dust plumes. Um, that's what they were looking at reactive nitrogen to do dust plumes. Um, so all the aircraft planning for that stage was based on sort of forecast models where these dust plumes were going to be and effectively trying to fly out and chase these dust plumes and find them, um, which the models actually work really well. Mm. Uh, we found um, lots of dust plumes. So yeah, usually it's depending on sort of people's interest or generally with the access campaigns, it is sort of mainly taking just sort of profiles at various sort of heights of the atmosphere and just looking at general reactive gas species and sort of how they're changing um, over time. Um, I think the first aircraft campaign uh, was 2017. Mm. Um, and then we've got, um, we should have had some more flying. I think it was last summer and some in January, but obviously <laughs> that hasn't happened. No, um, no. So we've got about another year of flying to do. So we've had um, one campaign where we were sort of sampling sort of within a jet stream environment that wasn't planned. And for me personally, I got some really interesting results out of that. Um, so it's fairly dynamic aircraft uh, planning. Yeah. The days are the best way to do it, isn't it? Where you get something spontaneous that you respond to and then you end up finding out something really interesting yeah, exactly. that you wouldn't necessarily have planned to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it's more like sort of just surveying the atmosphere as a general um, some people have very specific stuff, um, like me, um, more interested in ocean emissions. But yeah, there is such a sort of wide range of us. And then, you, you, oh, sorry, you, you said you got something out of the jet stream. Like there was kind of a spontaneous. Um, so flight. I wasn't on that campaign myself. This was one back in February uh, 2019. Um, so this was a winter campaign. So for me, I look at DMS oxidation products. So this is DMS produced by. Sort of five tanks in the sea surface. What's that stand uh, for? Sorry. Uh, dimethyl sulfide. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is sort of produced by sort of like all the algae and marine organisms within the sea surface. Um, and then these can get released into the atmosphere. They then sort of undergo several chemical reactions um, where they can then form um, ultimately what we call sulfate aerosols. Um, and these could be important for cloud formation. Um, so that mm. sort of affects the sort of the solar radiation budget for the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, and usually with sort of marine productivity, it's higher during the spring and the summer. But in the case of my results, our highest levels of the specific product that I look at, HPMTF, which <laughs> I'm sure we'll come on to in a second, that was highest during this winter campaign with the jet stream. Um, and we saw some features that never been previously reported. So it was really interesting to sort of un understand sort of how that sort of, I guess, um, not quite extreme, but sort of those um, weather, how those weather systems can impact these trace gases being emitted from the ocean. Right. You say I saw that you did an abstract for EGU, this big conference this year, is that right? EGU, yeah, yeah. and uh, AGU. Oh, both, amazing. Yeah. yeah. Brand new results, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I mean, I can't take credit for this. It was some guys over at NOAA. I guess maybe if I give a bit of backstory to my PhD, there's probably sure. a whole lot more sense <laughs> <laughs> of how I fell into this. <laughs> so my original PhD was actually to study bioaerosols in Antarctica. 
to go on the new David Attenborough boat, but I'll probably, as you guys are aware, there's sort of been delayed in that being built. Um, so it kind of unfortunately came relatively clear early on in my PhD that probably just wasn't going to fit um, in the PhD timeline. So then I was sort of, what else am I going to do? <laughs> what else can we do? <laughs> and at sort of, sort of that time, um, we knew that the, these guys over at NOAA had discovered this new DMS oxidation product, um, which we call HPMTF. So that's those okay. hydroproxymethylthiophobate. Nice uh, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone through about four name changes. Originally, it was called VSA, and it was lovely. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> and then they changed it. Too simple. Too simple. Yeah. <laughs> These chemists. So. <laughs> um, so they discovered this from so there was this big NASA campaign called the Atom campaign. Um, and they did a load of aircraft campaigns from sort of all over the world from, you know, the Arctic down to Antarctica over the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. So it sort of came from that. And um, we had sort of the access campaigns running parallel. We had future marine flying. Um, so this was, uh, oh, this is something, that, you know, I could really get involved with and get stuck into and make a PhD out of. <laughs> I was trying to understand this new DMS oxidation product. Mm. So that's how sort of I've, ended up what I was doing and then really because we know nothing about it it's been trying to understand um sort of on a basic level can we account the observations that we have like where we're seeing it within the atmosphere and those sorts of things that's what I've been looking at mostly really is sort of for aircraft campaigns yeah so where where did you say it was first identified so it was came about from um sort of the research team over at NOAA a guy right. called Patrick Verres Again, using so we have we have the same instrument as them. It's called um, a chemical ionization mass spectrometer, um, which is just basically used to measure trace gases. Um, so they sort of as these instruments have developed, the sort of the resolution has got a lot better. And what it was a the mass that this species has found out was originally thought to be something else, but like this is you know someone who's you know spent the whole career of this instrument noticed like a really small change in the shape of this peak and was like oh maybe this mm. is something different <laughs> and there's actually you know, there's actually you know a couple of things at this mass which is a sort of thing as these instruments are getting better and better we can start identifying all these new species that you know we never knew existed so is this it was an atmospheric measurement not a lab-based measurement yeah, or? Well, yeah atmospheric um, on a field campaign, on an aircraft campaign, okay. noticed that the shape of the peak changed. I think it was some, something like that. So resolution, um, increasing resolution means that now we can see more features and maybe notice different yeah. chemical species. And does, in the, I guess in the basic sense, I guess this is the, a spectrometer in the sense of you look at the absorption spectra and any emission spectra, and that tells you there's like a chemical fingerprint associated with the chemical composition, right? That you... Based on mass to charge ratios, that's how all of ours is. So mm -hmm. we use iodide um, as the reagent ion. So we have um, with, on the plane, we have like tubes effectively sticking out on the side of the plane. Yeah. And the air pulled through. Um, so of all these species that we pull through with iodide, you form these sort of like negative negatively charged adducts which then get um passed through the mass spec to the detector and you end up with a mass spectrum based on um mass to charge ratio but in the case of iodide um which has a charge of one you're effectively plotting the mass hmm. um, 
Okay. Okay. So the, um, I forget where I was going to go next with that. So this was measured in by this NOAA group. And then in some of the flights that you mentioned, the Axis flights, they detected it specifically over the North Atlantic kind of, kind of again. And uh, so it's now been measured in a few different places. And you're one of the people who's figuring out its properties and what it might mean as part of the climate system. Yeah, so, so um, I've been mostly trying to sort of understand more its distribution. Um, so the Axis um, flights weren't designed to specifically target the species. You know, it's something that's come out after and we've gone looking at existing data sets. And unfortunately, one of the things we're missing measurements of is DMS. So the, the, the gas that forms the, the species that I'm interested in, we don't have an instrument in our plane that can measure DMS. So understanding mm. sort of the chemistry side is a little bit difficult with the existing data that we have. We can use sort of like models um, and ground-based observations sort of as an indicator, but it's hoping when we, we fly this summer, it's something we're hoping to look at. So I've been looking at sort of where it sits within the atmosphere. So the guys over at NOAA mostly saw that this is only really sort of sitting within the lowest levels of the atmosphere, what we call the marine boundary layer. And then, so that's like sort of, you know, the first few kilometers of the atmosphere and they weren't really seeing it being distributed beyond that. Um, so coming back to our jet stream campaign, um, most of our campaigns agreed with the, what the guys were seeing um, in America, but then in the case of this jet stream environment, we're actually seeing it distributed like throughout the atmosphere and no one's reported that yet. Nice. Um, so that's been really nice to see. And then also the high concentration. So it's quite a bit of a bizarre campaign to see that our winter campaign was one of the highest. Um, but that was really cool. You know, that just happened because at the time we were sampling, there was a jet stream. Like, that was just, you know, me huh. study the natural world. So for some reason, it was highly concentrated in the jet stream at the time when you happened to measure it. It wasn't even like just within the jet stream, like the whole impact that jet stream had on the North Atlantic. Um, so we sort of, so we, you know, we started off in the UK, and we flew down to the Azores, um, which is sort of off the west coast of Portugal, sort of in the central Atlantic, um, did some flights around there, and then we flew back, and sort of throughout that entire campaign, sort of had these nice features that had no one ever seen before. Hmm. Um, so that was really cool. Okay, and it sounds like, I mean, we're still in the really early days of figuring out the, the full connection to climate. I mean, you mentioned that if you discover, because you discovered this everywhere in the atmosphere and because of its properties, it means that it's a potential uh, seed for cloud formation. And uh, Yeah, potentially. Um, that's one of the things that I think groups in America are sort of like performing more sort of lab experiments and chamber studies to try and see. But yeah, potent what happens after it's formed in the atmosphere we have no idea yet. Hmm. Um, we know that, you know, certain species of DMS oxidation, you know, are helpful for cloud formation. But minute we don't know if HPMTF is, you know, going to be a source of these climatically important species. That is it going to be sink of them or so at the minute it's quite interesting. Um, yeah. But we do know that this, well, one theoretical study suggested that its formation is temperature dependent. So sort of really understanding that it's going to be quite important, you know, sort of, as our climate keeps warming um, and trying to see if we can see that experimentally hmm. um, and um, in the field. But obviously with our campaigns, we didn't see that our highest was during the winter when it's the coldest. <laughs> so. <Yeah. laughs> so if it, 
I don't know, just to hypothesize, which direction does it go? If you get warmer, do you does it do you form more of this stuff? Yes, if it's it warmer, to... it's supposed to form more. <laughs> so if it's warmer, you form more. Maybe you get more cloud cover. So maybe that means a little bit of cooling, and that by that mechanism, of course, that's overwhelmed by the you know addition of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. But that's interesting. It sounds like maybe that's a little bit of a you know what's called a negative feedback mechanism potentially yeah, right so this so this idea of sort of biological regulation of the climate was proposed like way back in 1987 mm. um james lovely territory that <laughs> <laughs> i'm just going to ask you about that <laughs> uh, the claw hypothesis it is called the claw hypothesis yeah um so this is exactly what you should propose the idea that there is some feedback loop with sort of um ocean emissions from this from the biological populations with the clouds and then subsequent, you know, reflecting incoming solar radiation and cooling down the planet. Um, mm. So it was proposed a while ago and it sort of led to this cascade of research um, looking into bioregulation on the climate. But it's mm. just very complex and there isn't sort of really any massively supporting evidence. Um, there is supportive evidence for cloud feedbacks, though. I mean, if you take out the biological element, I suppose, because yeah. we know that DMS is produced by biological organisms over in the ocean. So that would it would follow that you could get, say, marine stratocumulus more readily. And I guess with lots of cloud feedbacks, they, they all happen in opposite directions, all at different timescales, and it's all extremely complicated. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's just like, there's been a lack of sort of like a global agreement between changes in DMS and changes then in sort of these, you know, these cloud formation. Um, yeah. I think sort of at the time they wrote this hypothesis, I think they were suggesting that this was the only source of these cloud forming particles, where there's now, you know, you know, it's, organics and all sorts of other things that come from the ocean that can um help this cloud formation just, <laughs> did you say it was called the claw the claw hypothesis is that what claw you said hypothesis yeah so it's named uh, after people isn't it named after the authors uh charles lovelock uh <laughs> <laughs> a, a suitable uh, number of letters of <laughs> <laughs> I'll have another consonant, please, Carol, and another vowel. <laughs> <laughs> and if you can't form the acronym you want, you just get more people involved on the paper. Yeah, so yeah, that, you know, actually, yeah. we're not going to have you because your surname <laughs> starts with X. Yeah, that. we can't we can't fit that in. Sorry. Yeah, need someone with an E. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so you say there's not really that's still a it potentially emerging body of evidence for this particular feedback mechanism that uh yeah even though it was proposed back in the 80s so for some reason it's been neglected we haven't been working on it as much as maybe we should have so it's good that uh good there's some people like yourself doing it <laughs> filling in those gaps in our knowledge yeah so yeah i'd i'd be interested to hear you know more about that but of course i understand that you're sort of kind of right at the limit of what you can understand so maybe a good way to go forward is um, where do you see the potential for progress in your specific in that specific area related to that problem you know where are the where are the biggest challenges where are the biggest kind of roadblocks and where do you see yeah. the potential for big breakthroughs i mean one of the biggest challenges that we're having right now is actually trying to make this stuff is difficult um so to do any um so calibrations or lab work so 
for me, like we quant like quantify data post campaign. So effectively you have to put a known amount of this species into our instrument um, to then determine how much there is. And you can't just, you know, buy this stuff on the internet. You have to make right. it ourselves. Um, and that's what we've spent quite a lot the past few months working on um, is trying to make this stuff in the lab. Um, so from the personal side, just trying to make this has been, is quite difficult and quite technical and requires um, a good amount of resources. How do you even start that? So I'm not a lab person at all, so I don't even know if somebody said, let's make HPM TF. I always get the TF or the FT reversed. I forget which one it is. I wouldn't even know where to start. Like, what do you what do you even conceptually do? So the guys at NOAA, um, I think they spent over a, maybe a year working on this. I have a whole team working on this. Um, so you start off, you can buy dimethyl sulfide, so you can buy DMS. Um, but that has so many branching reactions and mechanisms that, you know, there's not just one linear reaction. There's so many going off. So you have to try and use... Um, reactants and conditions that favour the formation pathway that you want to happen um, are trying to get that in the lab. Um, but one of the issues we have is we need to use carbon monoxide um, to as part of it, and obviously that's not the nicest gas to work with, like <laughs> toxic. So then you know that even just you know something as simple as that actually requires a lot of work to think about how we can operate that safely. Um, so we're working luckily like we are working with a method that someone has developed um, and I think there's some very clever people um, working on that um, but yeah we do stuff as sort of very selective um, sort of reagents um, and like the temperature that we have this at a high temperature to favour the formation pathway um, and stuff like that but yeah it's tricky. Mm -hmm. Loads of trial and error and building on chemical knowledge and um, yeah, yeah, just this really elaborate body of you know. I'm picturing all the papers you must have had to read and all the manuals you must have had to read to like even get started on that process. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky. I have a very knowledgeable postdoc who I work very closely with. Hmm. Um, so <laughs> these things are always very convenient. <laughs> yeah. Someone else yeah. doing the work for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. You build a group, you're supposed to like have people at different levels of experience who can all help each other out. And like, that's, that's the idea. If you can, if you can build it that way, it's good. Okay, so you said you have to make it because you need to put in like a known amount into there's a particular measurement process. And I guess that's kind of a calibration effort that, that you can then when you're measuring your atmospheric samples that that helps you know how much there is. Right, because you've, yeah, you've so done the calibration. The aircraft sort of um, our unit of measurement is counts per second. Hmm. So it's effectively the amount of times your species hits the te detector per second. <laughs> um, hmm. But for some species, we're way more sensitive to than others. So for sort of um, us, you know, a set amount species that we're really sensitive to will have a higher number of counts than species that we're not as sensitive to. Um, and this can also change depending on sort of the humidity um, as well. So we have to test the different humidities. Um, and that's really the first step to sort of understanding the data. Um, so sort of our data is actually our concentrations look relatively low and we're not seeing a great deal of variation across the North Atlantic. Like there is a sort of some small variation 
this winter campaign. But aside from that, I've looked at sort of where the air masses that we've sampled have come from. So we've had, you know, some coming up from towards the Arctic, some coming from North America, some coming like from across Africa. So, you know, we've sampled a whole host of different air mass types. And we're not seeing a great, like a lot of variation, which perhaps you would expect, especially between different seasons. Um, so once we've sort of got those calibrations sorted, um, we can at least definitely say, you know, <laughs> this is actually what we're seeing. And then we try and understand perhaps why that is. So One of the people we talked to a little while ago on this show is uh, Scott Denning, who he's built a career out of looking at the small variations in CO2 concentration that you get from, say, a thunderstorm or mm. like a really intense jet. Uh, and so he's done quite a lot of that kind of work of working out the how did those physical processes end up affecting the chemical distribution? And my my naive kind of ocean picture is I usually just think of the atmosphere as pretty well mixed, which is not fair. Um, but you know, I guess it it mixes quickly relative to the ocean, I suppose. So, but it sounds like that you might be thinking about similar mechanisms, but so far you've found that no, the distribution isn't that patchy it's relatively uniform and so there's the, um, so the, in terms of yeah like if you look at it and look like one horizontal level like say mm -hmm. above the ocean then yeah it starts to sort of differ when you start looking vertically so one thing mm. that has come out of the sort of the NOAA observations is that it looks like this stuff decreases rapidly in cloud so completely like losing it in cloud so mm. what's going on you know sort of chemistry that's happening then with inside clouds there wasn't a lot of cloud flying with access. We had maybe a couple, but in our flights, we our levels don't drop off in cloud. <laughs> but oh. been, there's been two papers now released saying that this, this HPMTF decreases rapidly in cloud. Um, and we have these two flights during this jet stream environment. Well, that doesn't happen. So Is that's it the same type of cloud? Well, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, we know this straws, I think, but... This stuff has passed through like frontal passage and but then so my supervisor is more atmospheric physics so he suggested you know looking at this more thermodynamically like is the layer is the air below the cloud sort of um coupled or joint with the air above the surface so or are they separated you know yeah, I guess if you said it's all temperature dependent, that could potentially be something. I mean, you get radiative cooling at the top of clouds mm. and inversions, there's cloud level and that sort of thing maybe could be important. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, possibly. Um, so there's all sorts of like those things. Could you uh, say what an inversion is? It's probably, let's, let's, course, we can editorialize yeah, yeah. that slightly. Classic, <laughs> throwing jargon out there without explaining it. And basically, when the temperature profile does the inverse of what you would expect, yeah. so rather than getting colder with height, it gets warmer. Right. Getting almost warmer with like height. Pink. Like, yeah. Like, almost like you need like your leg, like the shape, if you do like a line, <laughs> if you had like a bent leg. <laughs> so it, when you see that in the ocean, when you see that sort of thing, it tells you, like, if you see... Um, colder water sitting on top of warmer water, it tells you that, oh, that's got to be a place where the salt difference, the salinity difference is keeping the, the whole profile stable. It's keeping that whole arrangement of water masses stable. So what does it tell you in the atmosphere? Is it a potentially unstable situation where you've got 
you know the temperature uh, inverted and in, in relative to the way that you normally expect it? Is it the um, same sort of thing? Yeah, it tells you about the stability of the atmosphere because it depends on. I mean, warm air rises, cold air sinks yeah. in the ocean. Uh, so if you put cold on top of hot, then it's going to be unstable because the cold is going to want to descend and the yeah. warm air is going to want to ascend and vice versa. So it just tells you something about whether the, the layers are, going back to this thing of mixing, are well mixed or whether they're stratified and in two distinct little layers and whether they want to be there or not. That's what yeah, I think. So the stratified we see that in a few of our flights um so these ones where we're chasing these biomass burning and dust plumes from africa these very sort of um hot and dry layers and then sat above um these like the moist ocean layers and you just end up having those like completely separate two completely separated layers that are sat above each other and so sort of the hpmcf from the ocean then just doesn't mix beyond that it's almost like forms like a lid and you just end up sort of going round um, within sort of the ocean layer. Hmm. Um, and I guess that sort of ties into what you said before about um, looking at whether the cloud layers are yeah. like, decoupled, but it basically just means whether the layer with the cloud in it is doing something different to what the surface is doing. And I guess that could be one of those. Yeah, that, that's something we're trying to look at that people haven't looked at before um, to try and understand it. I love how you're doing such new stuff. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's very cool. And also I love how much I love how big of a part the dynamics is playing here because it's it's not just as simple as oh well this stuff is formed at the surface and then gets up into the atmosphere where it forms clouds. It's very active and things are are moving and there's stratification and mixing and uh, that's all very exciting. It's perfect example, example of the interaction bit. between different environmental components. <laughs> I think that is my favourite bit of this analysis, like looking at this tiny little trace gas species, but I'm looking at, you know, sort of the whole climate across the North Atlantic. Is, um, yeah, you must like, be learning a lot. Yeah, there was a lot to learn. <laughs> There's a lot of right like, chemistry, like, like weather systems, physics, yeah. <laughs> come out of your PhD being like an expert in the field. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So, Ella, with your flights, what, are, what did you measure? Are you doing any chemical composition measurements or are your measurements more physical? Um, when I was in Antarctica in, I mean, almost three and a half years ago, um, we were doing a bit of both. So the project was looking at the flow of heat and greenhouse gases between atmosphere and ocean. So we were doing lots of low level um, atmospheric sampling. It was looking primarily at things like CO2 and methane and water vapor. But, you know, uh, what, when, when, when you're in Antarctica, generally you collect as much data as you can fit instruments on the plane because you don't get very many opportunities to do cloud flying or any kind of flying down there so yeah. it was a bit of throw as many instruments on the plane as you can and get as much as you can so that's partly why um it was so full and now we're back to why it was so uncomfortable to fly in the plane because yeah, yeah so that's why the plane was completely just crammed full of instruments 
yeah, yeah. It, it was chock full chock full but that's that's how it always is I mean twin otters are very small aircraft anyway I think when you have no instruments in them you can get nine passengers in them when you use mm -hmm. them commercially they're used for teeny tiny island hops yes most of the time um and <laughs> nine people is not very many people no. compared to the the fam which is a one four six which yeah. is you know you can fit many people in <laughs> at least when it depends how many again it depends how many instruments you have on there yeah i mean if you had no instruments you could probably fit i want to say 50. yeah that's, yeah that's maybe more maybe, maybe more yeah <laughs> reminded of uh so my my wife used to work at bass doing some travel planning and flight planning and things like that and uh she found herself in a kind of an awkward position but everyone was very professional about it and just fine so the there's a very strict weight limit on these planes right like they need to know yeah. how much cargo is going to go on there so she found herself in the awkward position of having to send around a bunch of emails asking for everybody's weight um you know including the director of bass and so she had to she had to manage that very Wait, carefully no gary you, know. you have to sit on that <laughs> side of the aisle <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, everyone was lovely and professional and, you know, just fine. It's just one of those positions that you find yourself in sometimes. You know, yeah, I doing... find it extremely normal to be asked my weight because I'm a boxer. So right. it's the kind of thing you ask people, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah, so, hey, how are you doing? What, what's your club and how much do you weigh? It's a very right. bizarre way of introducing yourself. Not everybody's used to being so open with, with their their digits. <laughs> no i think it's definitely a very specific niche yeah yeah and i'm sorry i imagine you haven't been able to do very much of that in a while the boxing thing is probably pretty much shut yes, down at the moment. Contact. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah i go to a, a like a martial arts gym um yeah no boxing no nothing. What sort of martial arts is it <laughs> no so um so we do um so there's kickboxing boxing Jiu-Jitsu, Kabudu, Kabudu, I should know how to say that. Um, and then we also have powerlifting, strength and conditioning, and Olympic lifting. The full suite. Full suite. Which ones do you do? All of them? Um, I mainly do a bit of kickboxing, uh, strength and conditioning, and Olympic lifting. Amazing. That sounds like a nice <laughs> joke. Yeah. Right when it's open. <laughs> So Ella, Ella runs a, a gym, don't you? Is that Are you still running that one, the one in London? Well, yeah. I mean, in theory, right now it's yeah, quite yeah. to run a gym. <laughs> of course. No, of course, yeah. Yeah, that's that's one of my uh, part-time, free-time projects. All right, okay. Yeah, yeah, I imagine that's been quite difficult. Yeah, we do. We sometimes do interclubs up in, in Manchester. There's a similar sort of uh, project up in Manchester where we, we get our members to compete and it's always a real fun experience oh maybe maybe you two will have a match someday yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever fancy uh, the old normal boxing with no legs then uh, uh i've never actually done that my that's my boyfriend does the boxing but yeah i try kickboxing <laughs> i can't i can't deal with i mean hands are enough to think about yeah. using <laughs> legs and knees what? I have to think about all of these knobbly just things coming at me from exactly. all different directions. I mean, six punches is already <laughs> too much. So introducing knees and kicks. 
No thanks. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> too too logistically complicated. Yeah, too many to keep up with. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. Hopefully, we'll be able to get back to that sort of thing. Um, yeah. I haven't done anything like that in ages. I did do Taekwondo as like a teenager, you know, kind of young young teenager for a while, but um, I haven't really kept up with it. And <laughs> I, uh, I did get to at least work you know, I'm breaking some boards and stuff. That was fun. But that was a very long time ago. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So what um, What should we talk about now? I'm a, I'm a terrible host. I just asked no. you what you want to talk about. <laughs> I just like... <laughs> this isn't Jeremy Paxman. Does. No, no. no. I can say that we... Um, so most of my work has been on the Access Project. Um, but before that, I worked on what's called the Moyo Project. So this was flying over East Africa. Um, and that was primarily looking at quantifying the atmospheric methane budget. Mm. Um, I use that data set sort of like a, for training purposes. Um, but we also saw our HPMTF over um, Uganda, which is quite interesting. Oh, really? <laughs> Far from the ocean. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so they have sort of one of the world's largest freshwater lakes, so Lake Victoria. Um, and if you look at sort of like a global satellite chlorophyll, um, data, which is like an in, a useful indicator for biological activity. Um, Lake Victoria like, sticks out like a sore thumb, like its chlorophyll levels are ridiculous. Aww. So yeah, we saw it over East Africa, over Lake Victoria, um, sort of in this sort of the same amount that we've seen over the ocean. Um, so that was quite interesting. Can you rule out the idea that it's just been blown in by the winds? Is that something you can rule out, or so based on what we have know about the stuff so far, which is not great too we think it's lifetime is potentially in the region of like 30 minutes um so yeah so it's quite a very short-lived species and we can Hmm. based on sort of the um, we can plot the sort of flight tracks over the lake and you can see very clear enhancements um when we fly over the lake so that was interesting Um, but then you apparently you can also get dms from biomass burning so a lot of the flights um through that were flying through fires um and looking at that um, so that was, that was quite interesting. Wow. When you said 30 minutes, I, I got a little distracted thinking about, so the fact that you can find this stuff pretty high up in the atmosphere tells you about the intensity of some of the processes that transport it from near the ocean surface to, you know, high up in the atmosphere where the clouds yeah, are. That, exactly. So that axis four one is sort of a bit of a, you know, maybe the sort of the loss processes that we might be expecting sort of under this environment there just wasn't you know potentially wasn't very many but then sort of in this jet stream environment you have something that's like a lot more convective so pushing um these air masses to higher altitudes yeah so uh, what height were you normally flying at because i mean the jet stream is super high up in the atmosphere mm-hmm. so we fly right from literally above the surface all the way up to six above six kilometers all right okay so a lot quite a variation yeah. yeah you can see parts where we potentially actually flew in the jet stream by if you look at the wind speed yeah Um, so i was reminded of something that um i think it's david randall at colorado state one of the things that he likes to remind people is that the the transport speeds in thunderstorms that i mean these can be as fast as you know as a fast as as trains fast as bullet trains you know these, these can be very rapid uh transport pathways so I'm still kind of fascinated by that. That's a, that's cool that this short-lived species can get all the way up there. Yeah. yeah. I guess if you think about releasing a weather balloon or something, it does go right up, doesn't it? I mean, well, okay, it's you're you're helping it there. It's not just being transported, but 
um you know that's that's cool so you think that it it might be produced over this lake so the salt versus fresh maybe that's maybe that's not a big deal for this compound yeah so there's really high chlorophyll levels and i think what you tend to get sort of these developing countries with these rapid expanding sort of populations is that the infrastructure can't keep up and i think you get a lot of leaking like human animal waste like fertilizers all of this sort of just pouring into lake victoria that then the, you know, all these marine organisms can then just feed off and you get these massive algae blooms i mean this lake is huge and you know there's one of the things there is that it's a really sort of has this really local turbulent climate like fishermen have died um mm. because you know there's this, this lake is so turbulent um mm. and turbulency helps emitting um these gases from the you know well the surface of the lake in this case into the atmosphere why is it so turbulent i think it's to do with sort of maybe like all the mountains and then sort of how the wind uh, yeah. that sounds that sounds about right sounds, sounds plausible <laughs> sounds plausible yeah 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 wind wind driven mixing yeah. Uh, yeah yeah and i think it's like very hot and very like convective and yeah. right okay that's kind of fascinating because normally you think of a lake as having a fairly placid surface and you know maybe some nice quiet little gravity waves just bouncing around but uh man that i hadn't really thought about a lake with driven by really strong winds and being that um, convective uh and turbulent okay that's fascinating yeah and I'm, I'm again struck by this you know ella you mentioned this a minute ago just you're going from ocean physics ocean biogeochemistry to atmospheric physics and atmospheric uh, composition, yeah. to cloud formation and climate, all the way around, it just ties all of those elements in. So what yeah. a what a cool interdisciplinary project to, to work on. I just thought of a question. Does it matter what species of plankton are in the water body, whether that's the lake or the sea? Do they produce it at it, different? It does. So this is again. I mean, I don't really specifically look at um dms but one of the things is that you so chlorophyll which is an indicator of biodiversity tends not actually to be a great indicator of dms because you only get certain species producing dms it's not all species not all phytoplankton can produce it it's certain species that produce it which is why sometimes it's quite difficult to get a good indicator for it yeah and i don't know if that could influence the sort of prevalence of the the compound all over in the different flights that you're seeing i guess over the oceans less so because it's probably more likely to be the same species isn't it yeah i think dms is something that varies quite a lot spatially anyway in itself um so that's why like it is a little bit difficult to account for some of our variation without that Um, you can have um you can have different species in different parts of the of the ocean different dominant kind of plankton types in different parts of the ocean so if they do have different signatures via this compound i wonder if you could detect that but again it gets mixed kind of quickly doesn't it uh yeah it gets mixed quickly but it has a very short lifetime so it might be relatively local it might still retain a somewhat local fingerprint oh sorry did, it, did i interrupt i, I didn't uh, <laughs> It's so easy on these Zoom calls to accidentally kind of talk over somebody if, yeah, it's hard to know just when to jump in. That was a really cool question. I feel like, don't let me cut off the discussion if you have another, if you had more thoughts along those directions, along those lines. 
are there other science bits we want to talk about? We could kind of shift gears and talk more about science pathway sort of things. We touched on it a little bit, but yeah. I, I don't want to, any other science things? What do you think, Ella? I think all the questions that I had in mind to ask you have definitely come up already, which is helpful. <laughs> cool. Good. Um, yeah. So it's not like a formal segment or anything. If another science thing comes up, we can totally talk about that as well. Um, so you said you, did you grow up around Manchester? Is that what you said? Uh, I'm or? Sheffield. So okay. across the Pennine is about an hour away. Um, an hour away. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I grew up in Sheffield like my whole life. Did studied all the sciences at A-levels. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what were your folks up to? Uh, my dad is an accountant um, and my mum was a biochemist in the children's hospital so fairly oh, sciencey cool. and logical background and then my brother went to do maths at university so <laughs> we all stayed yeah. no rebellion there no <laughs> <laughs> so, it's in the house yeah when did you kind of start to get a sense for oh I kind of like science I kind of like math I kind of like this sort of thing and when did you start to sort of tilt in that direction do you would you say I, I remember in year nine really loving chemistry and I think it's because my teacher I think I really like loved his lessons mm. um and I think it was I was terrible at English like anything creative anything like to do with art I was just terrible at so I think inherently didn't really enjoy it that much um so sciences were the ones that I, I was better at I think I generally enjoyed it more because of that. Um, and I really enjoyed chemistry. Um, I had a great teacher. Originally thought I wanted to do like medicine. I went and did work, work experience and couldn't stop fainting. I'd just be chat, like sat, chatted to a patient. I'd just like keel over. <laughs> oh. Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> maybe this isn't the career for me uh, yeah I can relate to you I'm not very good with medical stuff either it's just um, I don't I don't seem to be built for that no. no and then I was just like what is my you know I a level I did biology chemistry maths and further maths um and then I was like which of these do I just enjoy um and I loved like chemistry I sort of really enjoyed that um so I was like I'll just go do chemistry then um mm. took a gap year first went traveling around South America um so I was in Rio de Janeiro for the World Cup um so it was good fun went to Peru and Bolivia and Chile mm. um so that was amazing um, oh that's cool why'd you pick South America out of curiosity honestly I have no idea I <laughs> um I'm quite lucky growing up um like my dad was really into backpacking so a lot of our like family holidays have sort of been backpacking so I've sort of got the travel bug from quite young but yeah I loved it it was amazing um so I spent like four four months did you speak Spanish I could have I did like a little bit um, I did Spanish GCSE my friend who I went with did Spanish A level so she was like fluent in Spanish <laughs> and yes. I picked up bits that's really good have somebody who you can get to help you out yeah exactly and you have no idea where you are and you're... So, so I did I feel like I did actually pick up quite a lot and then I've just lost it like Spanish mm. is something that I'd love to I'd love to carry on with. Um, but. Lo siento, no hablo más español. That's, I'm, I'm, I, can I can understand more than I speak, um, definitely. That's, yeah. just, that's how it works, isn't it? Yeah, you, your brain kind of 
can understand it more easily than it can kind of form the words. Definitely, because the, the actual speaking requires you to know the word, whereas if you get prompted to see the word or hear the word, you're like, oh, yeah, I know what that means. Mm. I mean, I, I used to speak Spanish almost fluently, and I've got very, very, very rusty recently. So <laughs> during lockdown, of course, I've been watching Spanish TV to try and uh, improve <laughs> my Spanish again and... I mean, you can understand it much better. Like, I would never know the word for, I don't know, caterpillar. Probably still wouldn't know the word for caterpillar if I saw it in front of me. But, you know, you, sometimes you can just figure it out based on other things that you know. Yeah. But did you, uh, so you went to these countries and did a lot of backpacking. Um, were you sleeping in tents or kind of hostile type um, so environments? Or? We sort of did a bit of hostelling. Um, we did like a month volunteering in Peru. Um, working so I work with like disabled children um, and teaching like little kids English so that was really good but then we actually did like an organized tour from Peru back to Brazil um, so it was like two months on a truck mm. <laughs> yeah and that was like because it was yeah it was really good and there's quite a few people that sort of did it was a trip that you could book and do like do segments so the whole thing was like two months which we did and there's quite a few people did that as well so you just got to like you know form this little family um, you were walking and trekking. Uh, oh, I trekked like Machu Picchu, but not I didn't trek across. Okay. <laughs> no, it was like this big like truck um, that you know that, that we all got almost like a giant bus. Um, that we all drove around. It had they did have tents on it, so in some places um, like we camped one night. One night we just camped on like the sand dunes in the middle of Peru, and oh, yeah. wow, it was good times. <laughs> you must have seen so many incredible different parts of the continent. I guess I mean that part of the world has a lot of latitudes yeah it was yeah you just saw so much like the like stargazing went to like a horse ranch and yeah um it was it was it was a beautiful part of the world like i highly recommend incredible get the chance it was amazing um, i was sitting on a zoom call a couple of nights ago just with some friends and uh they started talking about um quite seriously like all of the amazing places that they had seen on Google Earth recently. <laughs> Apparently this is a thing. People are using webcams as well to like virtually travel. Yeah, yeah. They were talking about places in China that they found just amazing and that that um you know it's and it struck me just how how 2020 that was i know it's it's no longer 2020 but it you know it had that feeling of like well we can't we can't actually go anywhere so we might as well just putter around on google earth and talk about it which honestly is cool i mean it, i mean it is neat that we can do that i'm not really trying to make fun of it there is just a contrast there between you know the being able to do it and just like sitting in your house <laughs> and, and pushing some buttons on a laptop yeah yeah so that's yeah, a great year um then I went to chemistry at Manchester. Um, I did a year in industry. Um, so I worked at Cadbury's for a year as a product developer. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> also sounds pretty good. <laughs> what did that involve? <laughs> so, so, yeah, I, was, I fell under the branch of Mondelez. So they're the guys that own Cadbury's, Toblerone, um, Milka, Philadelphia, Tuck Biscuits, like in this giant American. Um, global brand um, but I was based at Bourneville in Birmingham so that's like the home of Cadbury's um, mm. so I spent a year there um, and I was on the health and well-being team um, so that was like trying to sort of 
incorporate a little bit more nutritional value effectively to chocolate, which I'm sure you can do. Um, so a lot That's of that sounds like an uphill battle. Yeah. Honestly, I eat chocolate every day for a year. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was a lot of sort of like designing products, sort of going through like various versions of those. Um, a lot of like um, project management, working with like marketing and sort of the um, consumer science team. And then sort of in sort of the products they wanted to put to market, um, making like a lot of them to send around to consumers to conduct consumer trials to see what they thought of them. And then, you know, sort of tweaking them based on their feedback. Um, so I actually had like one product that went to market. So that was quite exciting. Um, it was under the green and blacks brand, um, but it's called these um, velvet fruits. I think that's what they called them. It's like these sort of like fruit. Um, almost sort of like jelly texture that are then um, wrapped in chocolate and those are the, the like little circle pieces. Nice. And how much chemistry did that actually involve? Did you get to do Absolutely that? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I had to write this chemistry project as well. So I had to, you had to study alongside it. Um, you had to do some modules, then you had to effectively like write a report at the end of it. And I didn't do any chemistry at all. I was like, what am I going to write this on? So that was, yeah. I had a, a lot of research and a lot of like clutching at straws. It's kind of how I actually got into like aerosols um so what i did was looking at glazing so the, the product i ended up making that went to market is made for a method called panning and you know chocolate usually has that quite like shiny it's very shiny and it's you call that like tempered chocolate and that's what give it gives it its shine but for panning which effectively you're making in a cement mixer you have like your pieces that you're going to coat in chocolate and you drizzle chocolate and this thing goes round and round and round and you slowly drizzle chocolate and like mold them to get these like nice circles. But in order to do that, you have to use untempered chocolate. So that when they come out, they just have this like really dull color. Um, and then you have to glaze them to make them look shiny and to protect them. Um, so glazing has quite a lot of chemistry in it. It's sort of like colloid chemistry and yeah, it was all quite technical. Uh, so I ended up doing that. But, but like <laughs> one of my experiments was uh, sort of rating like the glossiness of these different um, solutions. And I just had to get people to rate the glossiness because oh, I had no way, no way of measuring it. So I just got like people who were in, um, like in my no, team, like can you rate the glossiness from like one to 10 for each of these different. <laughs> food chemistry is really fascinating as well. I, yeah. I think when I was a kid, I learned that cakes were basically chemistry and it blew my mind. Yeah. So it was a different year, but it was good fun. I, I did have a lot. It was a good year. So is, is that product still out there? Is it is, you, you know. I have seen it. It's in, like, say, I think it's the Sainsbury's, Selfridges, Asda and Waitrose. What did you say it was called again? So it's called um, Velvet Fruit. Velvet Asda, Fruit. Green and Blacks. I have actually got a packet set on my window, so it's not very helpful for a podcast. For a podcast, yeah. Here's <laughs> <laughs> one I made earlier. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah that must be kind of surreal in a way to be in the grocery store and like oh i've worked on this like yeah, to, yeah. yeah. direct yeah. impact of your work hopefully the rest of your current work will also have such a direct impact yeah that'd be nice but... <laughs> <laughs> you can look at a climate model and go oh i discovered the thing that eventually turned into the parameterization that went into this part of the subroutine to Online, like one million four hundred ninety-three thousand two hundred eighty-two. <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah and then you can plot what it does to the climate sensitivity actually that is something i was curious about it sounds like what you're probably too early in the process i'm guessing 
but eventually these things need to get built into climate models, right? Like you put them into climate and chemistry models, but first you need to know a bit about the chemical species and how, how it actually reacts and under what conditions it forms, right? So I, yeah, exactly. I guess that, that must be, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're exactly right. The minute this species isn't really currently represented in sort of global models. Um, what has been done mostly is sort of trying to at least sort of represent its formation, at least get models predicting the right amount within the atmosphere. But at the minute, most of them are massively overestimating um, the amount we see. Um, so, you know, that in itself tells us there's still a lot that we don't understand and we need to know. Um, Any idea why? Why is it over over predicting them? So I think we no. don't know the loss processes for this. Mm. Um, so that's one of the things we don't fully understand. And potentially, you know, we could be the amount of DMS that's being converted into this is, you know, maybe it's too much, maybe sort of the weight you put in this pathway is too high and then there's um, sort of the time it takes to form this, the kinetics around this. There's been a lot of sort of different values for that as well. But yeah, we really are just at the start of all these sort of lab experiments, mm. and field observations to try and sort of um, reduce the uncertainty around this. That um, I'm bouncing around a little bit, but I was also struck by you know, you spent a year in industry and then decided to come back and do a PhD. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'll admit for myself, I haven't had an industry job and I kind of wish that I had because I kind of wish that I also had that perspective. Yeah. So I'm really interested in hearing, you know, any of the differences you noticed and what it was like hopping between those two worlds. And because yeah, I think I there's I've a... missed the technical. I, there was parts of my, I think now looking back on it, that the, the the whole year was relatively it was it was actually it was yeah it was quite stressful um it was working you know moving to a new city new friends working a full-time job and then having to study alongside that and also try and make a report where you didn't do any chemistry at all mm. <laughs> was like it was difficult but like I was lucky that I you know I did get a lot out of it and now I can I can look back on it there were certain aspects of industry that I really enjoyed, um, sort of like the project management and sort of the structure. Um, but I did miss doing something like technical and then sort of, um, not that chocolate isn't important, oh, you know, I love eating chocolate, but, you know, I think I did want to use my sort of scientific background, perhaps, you know, to, and I was always interested in climate change and sort of putting that knowledge um, to better use. Or well, maybe that's, need to say to <laughs> chocolate but I was interested in sort of climate change um and sort of just you know understanding more about you know the natural world and um sort of all of that yeah you know I, I can I can relate to that and also I imagine at some point you came across the opportunity right you'd notice that oh there, there are opportunities to do this to do the PhD kind of route yeah it's kind of like I knew so that yeah I was like, actually you know what I do I do enjoy learning um, like I would like to go and do um, like a PhD um, and then the way it works sort of like in your final year of university you sort of get you get like one research project um, I did like a very synthetic chemistry project which was kind of like fun for a year but by the end of the year I was like, actually I could not do like four years it's <laughs> like it's quite soul destroying um, and I was like I just want you know um, I'd like to do a bit more chemistry, but just sort of learn about stuff on a much bigger scale. I think a lot of chemistry projects are very focused on like a very small part, very on a very small scale. 
Um, and I just, yeah, I want to see something that looks um, on a bigger scale. And then you start- Oh, it fits into the big picture. Yeah, exactly. Like trying to just pull everything together, like, you know, from, you know, like human activity to how that affects the atmosphere and what we see and how that's all, you know, it's all constantly changing and developing. And so, you know, it's like studying natural is exciting. Like, you know, it's all new and just, yeah. And then you start looking at all these like PhD opportunities where it's like, you could go to Antarctica or, you know, you could do aircraft campaigns. I'm like, people are going to pay me to do that? Yeah, I sure. Know, it's a bit of a selling point, isn't it? <laughs> it's a little bit. <laughs> what with your, I guess your, your undergrad final year project, was that very different to the sorts of PhDs? That you so yeah, were like pre, pre like my PhD, I'd done no atmospheric science, no atmospheric chemistry. Um, yeah, I was trying to attach fluorine to some like organic compounds <laughs> and I know what that means yeah honestly I'm trying to even remember what I did in my undergrad but it was you know all very it was cool like I got to use um liquid nitrogen and you know like I did feel like it was I did feel like a proper chemist um so but yeah I was there was a PhD student and um, he spent like I think he said spent like five months of his PhD trying to synthesize this organic compound um, and he eventually made it, but like made like the tiniest amount ever. And then before he managed to even like put it through like um, analysis, he sneezed. <laughs> and he lost it all. Oh my I, just, gosh. I, just, I could do that for four years. Like, it's just. <laughs> oh, that's a horror story, but an amusing one. Isn't it? How's your PhD going? Not good. I sneezed. <laughs> It's just yeah. the wrong time. You can't really back up chemical compounds like in the same way that you could like back up data or, or you know. No, like what's just gone, it's gone. Um, <laughs> <I was like. laughs> backs. You can't drop backs it. Drop backs chemistry. God no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the only like crossover I had was that this project that I did looking at chocolate glazing had some similarities to aerosols and that's and so I was like I'll do an aerosol project <laughs> um, oh, that's interesting what are the similarities oh it's to do so like colloids are almost effectively like aerosols like suspended particles so you've got, I've heard you know, the word so like, like, I don't even try colloids are like suspended particles in solution and you know aerosols are particles in there and I was like okay uh, <laughs> like, but milk is one of those right milk is like water and the fat is a, in a colloid type configuration, isn't it? I think. I think it is, yeah. Because yeah. it's um, not like you could separate it out. Is I think is the idea. You know, it's not. It's not all mixed up in in the way that a. Well, I don't know. I'm I'm not being very precise at the moment, but yeah, there's something where there's the clear scale separation. I think between the liquid and the kind of suspended solid, if I understand correctly. Yeah. So yeah, I was looking at how all these colloids like interacted to form like a shiny layer and a protective layer around the chocolate. Um and that's sort of where the aerosol is. I was like, oh aerosols, and then read right upon those, I was like, oh these are really interesting. And there was an aerosols project in Antarctica. Applying <laughs> <laughs> your chocolate knowledge to yeah. <laughs> the regions. See that's how you can apply chocolate to greater, bigger picture, more important yeah. things. Perfect. <laughs> everything's connected everything's connected to everything else Even chocolate and antarctic clouds there we go there we go nature paper <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah, this kind of reminds me of something i was talking about with with a science educator a while ago where she talked about 
she would pick one thing and build an entire year around that thing. So she would pick like the peanut and then she would build all of her lessons around like literally everything, every direction you could think to go using the peanut as a starting point, you know, not just like how it grows, but then, you know, how it affects, how it operates as part of an economic system and how it could operate as part of a wider system. And it, it just, and it's, um, an example of, you know, you can pick one thing and you can find that it's connected to so many other different things. But, uh, man, I'm, I'm not on top of it today. I'm so glad we've got Ella here because um, my brain is just shot from this week. And it's been so awesome to have Ella asking some good questions and <laughs> moving the conversation. So thank you for being here. I'm really glad for that. A pleasure. Always here to supply stupid dad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, my dog's going to bark. Hold on. My dog insisted on being in here. He pushed his way in here. I'm going to go on mute just to, to, unless, Rory, do you want to be on the podcast? Do you want to like, yeah, he does. Yeah, there we go. So whenever there's like a car outside, he'll grump like this and just, uh, but it's not really, he'll only bark if somebody knocks on the door. If it's just like a sound outside, he'll just do this the whole time. Just a little. It's quite a cute little bar it is isn't it yeah. much more obnoxious <laughs> no it's not <laughs> I reckon so the queen's corgis make the same sort of polite noise is it just a polite dog species oh is that a polite dog yeah it's a polite grump isn't it that's right yeah it, it turns into a real monster if somebody actually knocks at the door though you know then he gets growling he starts to growl and snarl and really get kind of kind of nasty sounding and then of course when you open the door he's super happy and friendly and really glad to see you and he really just hates the door it's barrier frustration right that's what they say that dogs are not always angry at a person being outside they're angry that there's a door there there's a barrier that's blocking mm -hmm. them from seeing the thing they want to see uh, yeah which makes sense i kind of get that yeah that makes sense man well um we don't have to wrap up. I, I do sometimes ask this set of questions about, you know, what you've learned in different areas, which can be kind of a nice way to draw things um, somewhat to a close. But if there's anything else that either of you want to talk about, let me know and we can certainly do that. How are you feeling? Yeah, no, I think that was pretty much my journey into, into science. Yeah, chemistry, cool. chocolate developer so that was very exciting <laughs> yeah that was great i'm really glad curve, but looked at the north atlantic <laughs> sure sure yeah. the thing about science trajectories and careers is that they are often extremely circuitous oh yeah definitely yeah mine was just like that i mean i did drama a level oh really look at me now Apparently, yeah <laughs> don't tell anyone i'm rubbish at maths <laughs> <laughs> That's why we have computers. It's fine. You know, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, these questions, you know, you can go in whatever direction you like. You, you can give short answers. You can give long answers. It's up to you. But um, what's something you've learned about science and how it operates that, you know, something that you didn't know when you say we're still doing A-levels and things like that, what's something that surprised you about it? I think I assumed that we knew it all, <laughs> and that, mm. you know, that, you know, scientists had it all figure out, you know, we knew how the climate system worked. But then sort of as I've discovered, like from my, through my PhD, is that actually, you know what, we don't. Um, mm. And that's exciting. It still makes it really interesting. Um, but there's still so much out there to be discovered. 
Yeah, I like the jigsaw puzzle analogy that we understand a lot about the climate system. So the basics of the jigsaw puzzle are kind of already in place, but we still have a lot of missing pieces, um, holes in the puzzle. Well, something you learned about working in like academia, navigating the whole academic system, because that's that's different from science, right? That's like navigating um, positions and you know applications and administrative procedures and things like that. I think the biggest difference, I guess, with coming from something that was fairly corporate to academia is academia feels so much slower. Like everything just seems because it's not about making money hmm. in the corporate world. Like you know stuff has to happen because you know you've got those profits to hit those you know margins to meet uh, there is sort of just seems almost like a bulldozer effect like stuff has to keep happening whereas in academia that's you know that's not the primary goal is to make money so things um i guess at times feel like a bit slower although nicer environments to work in like in the corporate world was felt like it was very like it was very political and um but in academia maybe i I don't know, you guys have been mm. academic longer than I have, but, you know, it's just nice that it's more about, like, a mutual interest yes. um, rather than, you know, making money. Yeah, I, I haven't worked in the private sector, but that's I understand what you're saying, and it's really interesting to hear that perspective from somebody who's worked in, in industry, and that, that seems consistent with what other friends have told me about the private sector, that the pace is so much faster, um, I guess on an individual level, you're not necessarily expected to be a master of all things. You're maybe expected to do your particular job well. Yeah. Whereas I think sometimes in the academic world, we're sort of expected to, yes, you can take your time, but you're supposed to be an expert in so many different things <laughs> that it can be a bit overwhelming. At least that's what your answer made me think of. Um, yeah, so what's um, how about what's something that you've learned about field work since you've done a bit of that now? Yeah, I think fieldwork is just one of those the things you just have, like, take the opportunity as it comes and to not get too disappointed where it happens. Like, it's just, you know, opportunities are continually arising. Things are constantly change, like changing. And, you know, some things won't happen. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think um, so sort of just had to learn to ride the wave and sort of take what happened as it came. Um, I think maybe sort of like studying the natural world is quite a good place to be because there's always something popping up you know that you can go into but I yeah I've loved field work it was so much fun hopefully well you know I'll get to do one last campaign before my PhD is over um but yes but you feel like a real scientist you know then like your high-vis jackets like walking on the plane um yeah yeah Yeah, that's one thing I definitely really enjoyed about doing the field work I did because so much of the time if you're sitting behind a computer you feel like you could be anywhere yeah doing it out there in the real world it makes such a big yeah definitely and like I also have got um because part of my PhD I got these some of the access campaigns but before my PhD so you know I got given the data and then some I've collected myself and I just had so much more appreciation for the data and how many hours like these flying days are like really long especially so our instrument needs four hours before you even start flying to switch it on to get it right down to the right pressures so if we're taking off you know at nine we've got to be there you know four in the morning to just you know to switch it on and then if you're doing two flights a day you know it's more than eight hours of flying so you know they are like it is hard work that goes into them 
um, it's great fun then, then everyone in the evening that you, you know, go out for dinner together. And um, back in the February campaign, we had the weekend off. So we went swimming with turtles and, mm. you know, in the sea. And so, you know, there's just sort of all those like once in a lifetime um, experiences. And, you know, everyone's generally mm. in a good mood and having a good time. And yeah. You're working on a common purpose. You're working towards a common purpose, like you said, and you can get to feel like a little team pretty quickly. Yeah. You can it seems to... like it's intense, but it's all worth it in the end. And I mean, for me, particularly being coming at it from more of a modeling perspective, it gave me an appreciation because so much of the time, modelers treat observations as the truth and observationalists treat observations as not the truth. <laughs> and you have an appreciation of all the sort of assumptions and fudges yeah. that go into the observations that makes you go, mm, right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> as well as you talk about observational uncertainty but you don't really have an appreciation of it until you actually try and collect data yourself and it turns out really hard yeah and it's, you know it's not even like the scientists you know the, the engineers that are running the plane like the pilots and then with like sort of like the air hostesses you know keep you safe and yeah there's just so much that goes into it it's amazing that's it's a collaborative a, effort yeah it is yeah and I've, I've said this before on here so apologies to any listeners who think I sound like a broken record, but you know, if you look at a scatter plot with some data on it, the scatter plot totally hides all the blood, sweat, and tears that went into every single one of those data points. You just don't get any sense of that. You think about I think about that with papers as well. Like you're seeing this shiny, polished thing where like, hey, look at what we've done. This is really exciting. Look at these results. Oh my God, look at all this validation. And then you think about, okay, think about the peer review process. That was probably a bit of a headache. That was before, like after you'd written the paper, writing the paper mm. together, to write mm -hmm. the paper, you have to have results. Then you need to process the data to get the results. Yeah. And to yeah. get the data is a whole different set of challenges. And yeah. there's that whole cascade of things that you just don't see and all the failures and all of the null results and all of the inconclusive things and the kind of, Head banging and the wanting to smash the computer that's <laughs> not reflected in a paper. Yeah. Honestly, learning to code, I had no coding experience at all. And I was just like, what? <laughs> like, it takes like a day to make one plot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's something you've learned about coding? There you go. There's the obvious next question. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had. To, I had no. That's something I wish I'd like been able to in undergrad was at least some like Python knowledge or something. I had nothing. It wasn't that big even a few years ago, Python specifically. But yeah, it's really exploded over the past couple of years. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and then just yeah, learn how to like manage like huge like data sets. But yeah, very lucky that my boyfriend does machine learning, so it's very knowledgeable on coding because he's definitely helped me out a few mm. times. <laughs> like that would have been helpful yeah yeah <laughs> person to know oh yeah i'd love to take you know 100 credit for all my coding but um... <laughs> i was just picturing somebody's dating profile you know having like all of the you know likes and dislikes and then also request must know python r <laughs> yeah. it starts to look like a job advert it has like you know technical requirements on it send me on github profile <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> That's right. And if I can't, you know, if I can't download it and get it to run for my command line, then probably this isn't going to work. Sorry, here we go. Yeah, I've lost access because at the minute I'm like remote desktoping it into my office PC because that's mm. got sort of all the power to it. And there's so many times my coding has like crashed the PC and I've had to like 
contact someone like please can you go and manually reset my computer oh no <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> my coding was bad <laughs> uh, you, oh you're crashing the whole computer is that that's very interesting are you like taking up a whole bunch of memory is that what's happening i don't understand <laughs> i think it's uh, i've written like some bad coding like plotting something and then it just crashes and my whole pc just goes black whoa yeah it's oh. quite impressive, actually. It is, yeah. Solid work. We must yeah, be doing some really intensive calculations there. Yeah. But then you, know, you just do the classic switch on and switch it back off again, which in a normal world, it's quite easy to do when you're sat at your desk. But right now... <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> see whether the problem arises there. Yeah. <laughs> and we tell the difference between a cyber attack and someone just trying to make a really big plot and crashing the... <laughs> whilst i was on my year in industry really um yeah like the last month i was there we all got we got cyber attacks and everyone's laptops went down for like a week well huh. we maybe it wasn't that long but yeah that actually happened. did any chocolate get made so i was a bit well, i wasn't mixed but so like everyone just got to go home because most people work for their laptops but at that point i was making samples which i didn't need computers for so i was like one of the only people <laughs> and the department's still working like these days whilst everyone else got the time off <laughs> but you know oh my gosh i guess it's kind of a common quote where you know if, if you're in the it department it seems like you can't win because if everything's working fine they can you can be criticized like oh everything's working fine what do we need you for um you know what are we paying you for but then when things start breaking you get the same criticism of like well everything's broken what are we paying you for <laughs> and you kind of can't win um yeah okay so i guess they never really tracked down the you know source of the you know where the attack came from and they it just wasn't the news at the time like it was a few you know like companies specific companies that got targeted hmm. Hmm. Motivation behind it. i guess maybe once you get big enough you just become a target huh you just yeah. once you become sustained. I mean, who wouldn't want to steal the chocolate <laughs> that was phase one yeah phase one was take down the laptops <laughs> phase two wasn't clear and phase three was get the chocolate <laughs> i don't know we'll do something in between good well, this has been really good. Is there anything else that you two would like to talk about? Uh, no. We've covered all the bases. Yeah. We did. Chocolate, science, clouds, <laughs> ocean, flying. Yeah. Turbulent lakes. <laughs> Lots of good stuff. Yeah. Well, Emily, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah. I really appreciate it. This has been excellent. And uh, do you, are you on Twitter? Do you do the Twitter thing? So yeah. that was one of my New Year's resolutions was, was to get active on Twitter. Like I have a Twitter account, I've just never used it. Um, so one of my things, so especially like because conferences is looking you know, something that I'm, I may not get to do in my PhD. So yeah. yeah, one of my New Year's resolutions was to get active on Twitter. <laughs> sort of like, I know the overall Twitter is a garbage fire, but science Twitter honestly has been pretty good. And I think yeah, if you, I love yeah. science Twitter. It mm -hmm. has done wonders for my networking. I've had like written papers with people from Twitter. I've met people in real life who I met on Twitter first. Yeah. So many collaborations. I think it's one of the best tools. The best advice I got in my first year was to start Twitter make sure you curate who you follow yes. and it will be good <laughs> but don't start following any old stuff that that's important no no that's right no uh, no no big political figures you can you know 
I mean, you can stay away from some of those. Um, some of them are, you know, not on Twitter anymore. For hooray. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah, well, and I wanted to say thank you, Ella, for being here. It was really excellent. It was really good to have you here as a co-host. I think it really helped the conversation a lot, um, you know, from several perspectives. Are you frozen? No, don't freeze. I'm trying to compliment you. <laughs> no. Oh, oh. Hold on. Let's see. Are you back? I'm back. That was like the worst moment. <laughs> I know. I was trying to say nice stuff about you and your computer. Well, I just assumed you said lovely things uh, about me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've had a great time. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, it was wonderful to meet you, Emily, and to hear all the interesting things you're up to. It was really cool to hear about your, your career path. Yeah. Um, and yeah, really Excellent. cool to hear about all the new science that's happening. Hope to see some of it soon. Yeah. Yeah, watch the space. Nice to talk to you, Emily and Ella. Yeah, take take care. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Stay safe and yeah, maybe I'll meet you face to face one day. Who knows? Fingers <laughs> crossed. Yeah. Let's be friends on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna do it now. <laughs> I'm gonna get on Twitter. Excellent. I have an account, I've just don't think I've ever tweeted once. <laughs> Good. Well, I'll uh, talk to you soon. Take care. Yep. Yeah. Bye. Thanks very much. There you have it, my conversation with Emily Matthews. Thanks very much, Emily, for taking the time out to talk to Ella and myself on the podcast. You can find Emily Matthews on Twitter, although I don't know if she wants you to based on the username. Her username is at EmilyMA0268644. Uh, yeah, so there you go. <laughs> Learn more about the Axis Project at acsis.ac.uk. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean on Twitter, and Dr. Gilbert Ella is at Dr. Underscore Gilds with a Z or a Z, whatever flavor you like. You can also follow the podcast at Climate SciPod. Big thanks to our very first patron on Patreon, Chelsea Baker. Thanks very much, Chelsea, for your support. And if you feel like supporting the show so that we can work towards getting really professional recordings, uh, you know, other services, other equipment, uh, consider supporting us at uh, patreon.com slash climate scientists. Uh, editing and production by uh, Sean Williams Page. And you can find her on Twitter at S Williams Page with a P-A-G-E is the name there audio engineering consultation by Lillian Blair and that's all the credits so thanks very much take care talk to you later bye bye <laughs>